Hi, everybody. Welcome to this episode of the Bread and Goods podcast. I have Jamie Powell, a uh, reporter at FT Alphaville, to talk to me. Hi, Jamie. Uh, really happy to have you on. Hi, how's it going? Uh, great. Uh, my, my first question for you is, how do you keep up with the news every single day? Many bloggers I know write oh, every week. I write every month because it's so hard to keep up with it. But your job description is every morning you, you, you wake up and think of something in, uh, intelligent to say. How does that happen? Um, I think the first thing to say is not always that intelligent. Um, <laughs> now, I th- the, 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 yeah, it, it's a great question because um, I think um, if you look at the how the world has changed from the, from the newsroom of the 90s to the newsroom of the 2020s, information management is everything. So um, I've got an email account. I get sent. I wake up in this morning. I've got three. I keep my inbox at zero because I'm quite that type of person, if you know what kind of person it's like. But um, I've got 300 emails in my inbox when I wake up. And most of them are press releases. Most of them I don't even read. I just mark as read or delete them um, or block whoever sent them. Um, (laughs) uh, So I read through my emails get some great morning macro updates from investment banks and um, analyst research, see what's interesting, see what's going on, see what's moving in markets, see what happened overnight in Asia, um, and then um, see what's happening before the open in Europe. Um, And then through the day, obviously, I'm on Twitter a lot. Um, Twitter is a really good resource for those listening to the podcast who are interested in finance and um, want to learn more. There's some very good accounts of famous fund managers and excellent journalists and a lot of excellent anonymous accounts as well who have uh, insights that you probably won't be able to find anywhere else and you might be able to interact with um, if they hear you or you say something intelligent. Um, uh, So I spend a lot of time on Twitter, see what people are talking about. That might be a guide for what's interesting as well. Um, But yeah, that's my general framework is kind of mix of Twitter, inbox, I have some few good contacts as well who I might just call up in the morning for a chat for 10 minutes or 15 minutes and say, hey, what are you looking at? You know, what's happening at the moment? You know, what's weird? What's interesting? And then if it's weird or interesting, is it weird or interesting enough to be published on FD Alphaville? Have a look, spend half an hour looking. And if it is, I might try and write something on it. Um, and that's my kind of, and that's the kind of day, daily work. And then on top of that, you've got longer pieces you've been working on for a long time where you're waiting to talk to someone or you haven't quite nailed a piece of detail in the story that's really important and you need to source it correctly and you're trying to find someone to talk to and you're on LinkedIn and in the inner depths of Google and, you know, even on social media site, you're using Facebook and Instagram and trying to figure out who, who knows what. Um, so that might be two to three hours of my day every day where I'm not really looking at Twitter too much or markets. Um, but then there are some days like today, I mean, this is recorded on the day where Netflix's shares are down 24% after they missed on subscriber growth. And that's just like a huge story. And it, it just it did and reverberating throughout markets. And at the same time, Peloton um, look like they're in serious trouble. So sometimes the stories are just there. Um, uh, but sometimes you've got to go out and look for them. But um, I think getting your information flow is really important. And it's the same. Um, I know the investors I talk to say the same. You know, it's, we're not in the days anymore of, getting SEC filings before they're faxed to investment companies by going to the, you know, going to somewhere in Washington in a basement where they're given and, and you're three days ahead of the news, right? You know, you've got too much information. So filtering is everything, I think. Uh, you write a lot about short sellers at FDL, uh, Alpha World. 
right? After we start sellers, at least those who are public are usually right on average. If I see a report from the activist uh, short seller in my in my mind, I give them a seven to eight out of, out of ten chance of being right. Is this because mm-hmm. of the specific people involved, like Muddy Waters or uh, Hindenburg, or is it structurally that way? Or if I were to put it in other words, will the activist short sellers of twenty fifty will also be on average correct? I, I the thing is about activist short selling is that it's very name. I think. You, we could say some names where you know Muddy Waters hit rates very good, um, Hindenburg's hit rate is very good, but then there's some activist short sellers who are, you know, not good or I don't trust them. And um, the thing is about short selling compared to buy pitches is that, um, and this is an obvious point, but the markets tend to trend up, so you've got to be your work's got to be completely right to move the share price. And it's got to be right to an extent which no one knows. And that that's a super high bars to clear. Um, and the risk if you're wrong is much higher because if you get squeezed or a stock moves against you, you can lose more than your principal. So I think it, there's, there's natural structural elements to short selling, which mean it's riskier. So you've got to be a lot more careful with your work. But then again, depends on the market environment you know in a bear market you could put out a short report that's not very good and it will probably move the share price downwards um so yeah i think um depends on the name but yeah i, I think i don't know if i'd say they're always right seven seven or eight seems high to me i'd probably put it like four or five but the ones who are very good are very good um uh, but I, because it's become more popular as a strategy um, and you don't need a lot of capital to make money. You can, I mean, options trading around report release, you can make a lot of money if a share, share price moves downwards quickly if you're using options. Um, so that makes me a little bit more suspicious about it than I perhaps used to be. Um, but then there's some brilliant people in that field who do some great work. So, um, and it's a bit, it is, it is the main source of uncovering frauds in equity markets um, and it's done a lot of good um, for keeping. Uh, chief uh, chief executives and investors honest over the over the years. Um, across regulatory regimes, there are multiple approaches to this, right? Like in the US, if Muddy Waters releases something, you have uh, regulators don't pay much attention to it outside of a promising an investigation, and, and and that goes behind the scenes, which we don't know. On the on the other hand, in uh, maybe parts of Western Europe and Asia, uh, you have regulators who get very, very concerned about what they call spreading rumors in the market. Uh, You're a a, a reporter. The FT does investigative pieces. What's the right balance to strike here? Um, I think the regulatory approaches, um, I think it can be explained by culture, really. I think America, the First Amendment, America is a very much an attitude of people have to say what they say and there's absolutely no way you can get in legal trouble for it, like to, like uh, almost to a ridiculous extent, right? Um, to an extent that some people in Western Europe and Asia and, and Central Asia and everywhere else in the world might find absolutely ridiculous, right? You know, um, like hate speech and things that you can never get away with in the UK at least. Um, um, and and in, the, in markets, I think... 
look, Western American capitalism has done very well in in that environment. Um, I mean, it's not had the greatest outcomes for everyone in America in the last thirty years. But if you just on the, on a very basic gauge of share prices, like markets have been pretty good um, for most of the American people. So I, I don't think you'd change that. But I think in Europe and Asia, it's been a bit more of a mixed picture, and. Um, I also think that markets are smaller, they're more illiquid, everyone tends to know each other, um, and that does cause an effect on how short reports are looked on um, in those countries. Um, and, you know, we don't have many market darlings in the UK. There aren't many businesses where you go, that's an absolute stonking business, like every investor owns it in 10% position, you know, in their funds. While in America, like, Nearly every long short LS long short fund or long only fund will own one of the fang stocks in size. Um, like the ownership is just, but in the UK we don't have this. When those good companies come along and then short sellers go after them, like everyone gets very sensitive about it. Um, so there's an element of that. Um, but I think it's also just like like libel law as well. I mean, we were talking before the show. Um, if you say something incorrect about a business or a person in the UK, you could get bankrupted in court. Um, you could get sued to high hell. While in the US, I mean, there's lots of, I mean, I've seen some short reports which are insanely sloppy and um, nothing could ever happen. Like there's no, there's, there's a lot of protection for free speech. Um, so I think it's just a function of the legal system as well. So, um, and that, that's that been in place far longer than activist short selling. So um, yeah, I, th- I think that kind of explains most of it. Yeah. Your comment about there being market dollars in the in the U.S. Let me to pull up a chart of the U.K.'s largest companies by market cap, and if I look at it, almost all of them were founded before 1950, with the exception of AstraZeneca, if my memory serves right. Out of the top 20 companies, maybe except IHS Market, all of them are really, really, really old. Is it that mm. the British? companies like have less churn or what's the explanation for there being more older companies in Britain versus the US? I think there's a sector, I think sectoral sectoral weighting is super important and also economic policy. I think you could put them into two brackets. So US has higher churn because there's a lot more tech companies. Like if you look at the weighting of the S&P 500, I think, I can't remember the exact figure. I think between 30 and 40% is TMT, including tech, right? And in the UK, it's like 5% of the first 100. So, and we don't have the same technology, um, also, you know, technology culture in the US. Like we don't have a Silicon Valley equivalent. We don't have the networks, um, the talent pool, uh, the universities where those where that kind of talent's attracted to. And also the, the depth of capital markets to fund those sorts of businesses. Um, so we just have less of them. Um, and then on the sectoral point is we've got a lot of banks and oil and gas companies, um, and insurance and asset management. And those are businesses which only really work at scale, arguably. Um, and naturally towards needs towards much bigger businesses. Um, so, um, yeah, I, th- I think that that kind of explains it. Um, and it's, it's a big question, to be honest with you. Um, I, we, we'd love to have a few more tech companies in the UK. And I know the government's very keen on it, but we don't really have the infrastructure to support it. Like venture capital in the UK is still a tiny business. It's there. I, I, can, I can name 10 venture funds in London 
like off the top of my head. And I don't know how many of them have got over a billion in AUM. You know, we're, we're, not, we're not talking about serious amounts of money going into startups. And anyone who's got a good idea is going to move to Silicon Valley because Andreessen Horowitz will turn up. I've heard of startup founders being told you'll get funding from us if you move to Silicon Valley. So you have these network effects, which you can't avoid. Um, and then those companies will, of course, list on the NASDAQ. And if you're a UK company and you're a great tech company, then you might choose to list on the, the NICER or the NASDAQ anyway. So um, I think that partly explains the kind of sucking effect from the US um, for reasons beyond uh, things which are easily explainable, just like long-term economic policy decisions America made in the 1950s. Now you can see it, you can see it in the in the makeup of the uh, the indices. Um, and um, yeah, I think that's, I mean, but if you look at Japan, like Japan's got old companies who do new tech as well. So again, there's an economic policy angle to that perhaps. So we don't have a business like Sony or Honda in the UK. Um, uh, so, um, or Nintendo. So, um, and those are, those are arguably tech companies who are as competitive in their sectors or in their particular product lines as, the, as with the US companies they compete with, if not more competitive at times. So, um, but that's obviously a function as well of Japan's economic policy choices after World War II. So we're still playing catch up a bit. And actually the dot-com crash came at exactly the wrong time in the UK because we were beginning to see some positive effects, especially in London and then Cambridge um, around startup funding, um, number of businesses being founded. But the, the dot-com, we had it, America had it eight years after it kicked off. We had it two years and they just completely killed it. So um we had some timing issues as well, but yeah, it's it's a it's a good question. Um, yeah, speaking of bubbles, actually, historically, bubbles have led to a lot of innovation of excess capex in the field they're in, right? So if you look at the uh, TMT bubble of the late nineties, uh, so many companies put 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 into the advice under, uh, underground, and that and that basically led to you know obviously falling capex later, but uh, cheap uh, internet relative to what happened if the bubble didn't happen. If you look at yeah. British history, I, I, I talked to Duncan Weldon uh, a few weeks ago, who, who said that in the 1830s, there was a bubble in, in railway stocks and canal stocks, which, which led to overbuilding mm. of canals. Are bubbles on net positive for the economy, given all this? Like, yes, you took a bunch of money from upper middle class people who want to put their, uh, it's sort of a transfer from, uh, you know, stock investors to people who, are going to use the infrastructure later. Um, I think that's a great point. And I, um, Bill Janeway, who um, is a professor at um, Cambridge University and founded Warburg Pingus's technology department, um, very successful financier in his time and now a teacher. Um, he's written a brilliant book called Doing Capitalism that's all about this. But I think you need to split bubbles into two categories. Um, you get productive bubbles. I mean, you mentioned the TMT bubble in the late 90s. I mean, we are normally associated with tech stocks with pets.com and Amazon and eBay. But there was also a massive TMT bubble, which built a huge amount of fiber capacity, which wasn't used for seven or eight years. And as you said that, I mean, actually, because internet isn't that cheap in America. So I don't know if it's made it. But um, it's a lot more expensive than it is in the UK. But um, uh, um so you get productive bubbles and railroads and canals, and we had a we had a, like a light lighting bubble in the 1880s in the UK. Um, so we, lots of great examples of that. Um, and and that you know, speculation leads to more capital raising, leads to more capital expenditure, leads to 
not only just building out the infrastructure, but also like higher levels of expertise, more more investment in research and development, et cetera, et cetera. And this makes that sector of the economy more productive and maybe gets it to the point where it is profitable uh, in 10 years later or five, even five years later. Um, you know, Google was profitable by 2005 and Amazon was cash flow positive in 2002, I think, or three. So it didn't take very long. Um, but then on the other side, you have kind of unproductive bubbles where people are just raising money and it's going on wages and um, ridiculous projects where actually the, the kind of uh, intangible assets being built up have little to no use. And we had a bit in the 80, 1980s, we had a, bit, a little bit with AI. There was a bit of an, um, not to the same extent as TMT, but there's a lot of investment in AI firms. Uh, in the 1980s, we had a bit of an AI winter between 1980 and uh, in the 1980s and 1990s um, because the tech just wasn't there yet. We just didn't have the intellectual um, underpinnings to push it forward. And it's taken until the last five years. And even then, it's still, you know, still like I can't really I can't think of any a, like AI companies solely who are really killing it still. So um, it can that's the reverse effect. And I, and I think um, the example I point to at the moment is um, Electric vehicle stocks, like the, the the total capex across the entire sector of these new entrants, including Tesla and BYD, um, including the the large ones, Rivian, whose whose capex is actually like half of Tesla's, um, is, <laughs> is 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 at, like it it's um it, it's it's like a marking error. It's, I can't remember the exact figure, but it is, I think it's below Toyota's CapEx, like across the whole sector. And of course, so there's a capital efficiency point here, like Toyota's a big bloated conglomerate. I mean, I it's probably pretty well run business, but you know, it's going to spend money where it doesn't potentially need to, or where well, not where the profits are. So there's an argument to be made there that like some of these EV companies will be spending a lot better and Tesla is clearly spending their cap, CapEx a lot better than uh, most of their competitors over the last 10 years. Um, but uh, what's going to be le- like when like, a lot of these companies are going to go bust, some of their shares are down 80 percent to 90 percent. They're not going to be able to rate if they get if they can tap the capital markets again, it's going to be a horrible term. It's going to be a convertible bond with like a 5 percent coupon and like, you know, 10 percent premium. It's, it's going to be horrible. Um, and when they go bust, like what's going to be left? Like a CEO who made a lot of money from selling the stock and a bunch of workers who might not have gained any expertise because the business is only two years old and they haven't actually produced a car yet. So, um, yeah, I think you can have unproductive bubbles. And the other type of unproductive bubble as well is when it gets to the credit markets. And, um, I mean, I don't need to say anything about that. That was, that was 2008. You know, we had a credit market bubble. And what was left was, you know, beach homes in Nevada. So Let's focus on the other massive credit bubble, or this both the credit and equity bubble. A lot of crypto tokens have increased in price massively over the last year. I, I mean, obviously, last two weeks have been different, but, but I know people who put like half their NS salary into thirty different crypto tokens, and they were up like ten thousand percent over three weeks. And I felt the, 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 smart. really bad about that because <laughs> I, I thought I was smart, but like, no, winners. <laughs> Not smart, but. <laughs> uh, yes if you're investing it's about making money I and mean, that's what the math is really in my opinion, so. <laughs> yeah sometimes yeah. being dumb is the is is the new yeah. being smart so yeah yeah Where do you think there's an obsession with being smart you know amongst investors there is an obsession with looking clever and it's a, mm-hmm. a 
it's kind of it, it, it gets a bit ridiculous at times sometimes they really like a long thesis and it's just so complicated that you're like it, like it's gonna go like you've got a price target 30 percent higher and you've got like a 40 page deck like like that's not worth the work you know <laughs> um so yeah yeah but you're right you're right i think that i mean there was obviously a crypto bubble i mean what's going on now um but the, the, i mean I, I, I don't i'm not the person on alpha who's an expert on crypto but clearly um it's the, we're seeing all sorts of speculative excess and we've got coins being listed they're not even on a blockchain so it's basically just like an equity like unregulated equity issuance right and they're raising this money and they're doing a whole bunch of stuff which has no economic sense um and the way it looks to me at the moment is that the, 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 I think the fundamental issue with crypto and blockchain, and I know people like to split them out, but I think they're quite linked really, is that it's a solution looking for a problem. You know, Bitcoin was originally meant to be like a new payments infrastructure, but uh, like outside of the US, payments work really well. Like in most countries, it's very easy to pay a company in return for goods. It's very easy to transfer money to your friends. Like in the UK, it happens instantly. I mean, when I tell people in America, that I can like send one P between my friends, like endlessly, like, and it's instant. It just blows their minds because their payment system is so arcane. Um, but no one ever has said, oh, I wish, you know, like I could send money faster in the UK. Like, it's just not a problem. And it's very easy to do huge wire transfers across the world as well. Like the fees aren't super high relative to the amount of risk that you should be taking on. Like if you think about moving $500 million across the world, that, that doing that a hundred years ago, the amount of risk you would be taking on is just insane. You know, getting the banks to talk to each other, making sure the money was there, like that's a huge process. Now it just happens instantly, right? For a, I don't know what the fees are, but below 1%. Um, so, um, I th and, and it seems like they're trying to solve a problem which no one has, no one has, no one has. Um, and I'm still trying to figure out what the problem is that these and, and now with web three and decentralized organizations like no investor ever goes oh i wish i could manage the company myself like that's just not i wish i could vote on every corporate decision within the business <laughs> like no one has ever said that like what's the problem you're trying to solve like okay sure centralization in the in the internet the internet tends towards centralization because of network effects like that's the most obvious thing everyone knows that that's like the long pitch on every stock for the last 20 years but the answer to that is not I don't know what the answer is. I don't have a good answer to that. Whether it's a problem A is a good question. And then whether there should be an, um, the answer to that B is another. But getting token holders, i.e. equity holders, it's like unregulated equity holders to vote on every governing decision. Like it's, it would be a total mess. Like how do you, how do you operate in a, like Silicon Valley is about like lean decision-making using little capital, you know, moving fast and brave things. Like you, you can't move fast if everyone's voting on every governor's decision. So I I don't, but again, it seems like a way to justify crypto. They're working backwards. They're like, okay, crypto's worth something. I made a lot of money on it. I put a lot of time into it. How do I can make it, how quick I can make it work rather than being like, what's a consumer problem? Let's answer the consumer problem with a great new product. That's what capitalism, that's what it works really well. This is doing the reverse. It's going, I've got something which I made a lot of money on. I'm trying to figure out how someone can use it like that's like bonkers anyway yeah that's my general view on crypto like anytime i talk to someone in crypto and they're like oh yeah you know um oh it's going to change you can do this or smart contract and you can put it on the blockchain or you know and i'm like why 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 should i put it on the blockchain like we've had ledgers 
you know, we've had um, Oracle backend software managing Tesco's inventories for ages and it works fine. You know, it works fine. Like, like what's the problem? Like, what problem are you trying to solve? You know, and uh, it worries me a little bit about Silicon Valley and some of the, I mean, you know, Andreessen Horowitz is right there. They're trying to, I just think they're trying to raise like a $4.5 billion fund to do crypto. But like, what is the consumer issue you're trying to deal with? And like, that is, that's what business is about, right? Like, that, you know, I, I'm, I like to defend capitalism. I'm not very popular with some of my friends when I do that. But I think when it works well, you know, we get a great product at a great price and like that. And and the company makes a profit and they reinvest it into more capacity or they give it back to shareholders and they reinvest somewhere else. Like it's a nice idea. But when you see venture capitalists giving money to businesses where the idea seems to be a token and the token going home value is actually the, the actual end sort of means, you know, um, that's a big problem. And of course, in equity markets, you get shysters raising money and selling stock and all they care about is the stock price. Like it's it's not that different to that, but like most of the time they also have quite good products, you know, and they've got to have a product that works to have a good high share price. And only in a few instances, like we've seen in EVs in the last year, is that actually not the case. But in general, 98% of US market capitalization is tied to products that work. Um, and the products that don't work or don't make a profit, someone else takes it over and tries to make it work or they go out of business. And that that's that's how it should work. Anyway. I've gone a bit of a rant, but yeah, crypto, crypto at the moment. I, I've yet, and also I, there's a really important point to make here that like Satoshi's white paper was 2009. We're in 2022. There is still no, there is still no wide consumer adoption of crypto apart from speculation. Like that's, that's a long time in capitalism. That's a long, long time. Like if we, and if you believe that technological adoption is speeding up, and I think we all believe that, we all see it every day. You know, I, you know, I, I was told not to get in a stranger's car in 2005 and seven years later, I was getting in an Uber, you know, like technology changes the way we use things very rapidly. Um, but we've been 13 years into crypto. Where is it? You know, and um, I, I, a good example is the Wright brothers, you know, the first Wright brothers flight was in 1903. And I think they did the first commercial journey in 1911. So that was eight years. It's taken crypto longer than the plane did, you know, in the 1900s. Like that is, there's something horribly amiss about, and the sort of people it attracts, I think it says it all. I mean, look at the people who are pushing crypto. And I think, yeah, it, it, you know, if you're, I think Dan, Dan Davies, who wrote a brilliant book called um, Lying for Money about fraud, really recommend it. Um, he may he said on Twitter recently, like, if you're a scammer and you're not in crypto, what are you doing? I mean, like, it's the easiest way to make stupid make money by ripping people off, like, you know, mobile scams and cold calling and you know, pyramid scheme, like, you know, MLM pyramids pyramid schemes, like, they're hard to run. Like, issue a coin, pump it on Discord, sell it at the top, you're out. Like, and there's no, like, it's not illegal. So. Um, I mean, technically, it's not. I mean, I'm sure the, I'm sure the SEC would have a different view, but like, it doesn't seem to be illegal, <laughs> given how much has happened. So, um, yeah, I, yeah, it's the space is, yeah. I think that's the view. Like, it's had time to get there, and it hasn't got there. So, why are one of the most story venture capital funds raising 4.5 billion dollars to invest in it more? Um, that's, yeah. Okay. Yes, but does this? Uh, it's a great way of making money. It's a great way of making money, and I don't. 
I don't begrudge anyone who, like your, like someone you met who put half their salary in 30 coins. Like last year, that was quite smart. Like that was what was happening in crypto. Like take on a bit of risk. Why not? If you're in your 20s, you know, it's not the end, you know, and you've, it depends on your financial circumstances. But like, I don't begrudge people investing in it because they think it's going to go up. That's just, that's markets. Like when you buy a share because you think it's undervalued, like you think it's going to go. I mean, you're doing a bit more work maybe, but often you haven't, like, you know. Um, some of the best stock pitches I've heard are just one, 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 like one, one key point, and that's what drives it. So um, I don't begrudge people making money in crypto, but I do begrudge how much money has been pumped into it and the intellectual frameworks around it. Just like no one's, and yeah, and the consumer proposition just doesn't exist. So um. no, I turn to Bernie Sanders every time I see like a really smart person who could change the world, but he's like, I'm going to go work in this obscure edge of finance or crypto. And I'm like, oh my God, no, we, we, should, we should tax this guy's earnings. We should make him, yeah. make him go make rockets or um, make new At least with an obscure edge of finance, you can say they might add a little bit of value. There's going to be something they can do. They might make someone's lives easy. They might do what we're talking about, a consumer. There might be a consumer proposition or a corporate proposition for that business, which is good, right? Like it helps people. Like the there is no consumer proposition for crypto except number go up, and the pro and the problem is number doesn't always go up. So, and at the moment the consumer proposition for crypto is looking terrible. So, um, you know, whoever bought it sixty thousand dollars, there's a lot of people who did. You know, they're they're down forty percent. So, um, yeah. So wait, I take it I take it that that you're of the of the view that the SEC is more or less right in considering crypto tokens uh, unregistered e uh, e equities. Of course they are. Yeah, I mean, I mean, like, what else are they? You're raising them to fund the projects, like. But like, it's it's security. Like it's... Selling airline miles to start your airline. It, it's rarely promising a dividend. If you, if you look at many of the of the tokens, they say you get. I mean, at least in the ICO boom, it it was you could. Get us. You could get to use the product later if you paid for it now. Yeah, but yeah, this is just. Yeah, that's like saying that's like a Kickstarter though. Like, how is that different yeah. to a Kickstarter? And why does it need crypto? Like, why don't you just do a Kickstarter if that's what you're? You know, like mm -hmm. the only reason they're using a token is they think the token's going to go up a lot in value. Mm -hmm. That's you know, like that's why. Otherwise, they would have done a Kickstarter. A few you years know, ago, <laughs> no, a few. I mean, like in twenty twenty, when there was all lockdown, there was a great. Twitter said on why you shouldn't start the next bubble and basically explained it. What's the Jamie Powell take on uh, how investors should approach sharting bubbles? Because if you see this, this really, really overvalued, what is less politely known as a shit go? Uh, and then you say, oh, how do I, how do I make money off this? And you short it and, and it, and it goes up for some inscrutable reason and you get burned. So how do you make money off these uh, extremely poorly run companies slash tokens and without, you know, impairing your capital permanently? Well, Prajee, you've got two choices. I think you've got two choices, really. One is you just get along for the ride. I mean, A, I don't give any investment advice. Like, yes, th this is just the kind of me thinking aloud here. A, either you go along for the ride, you're at a pod shop, you're a trader, it's going up. Like Bitcoin, I, I, one macro strategist I know tells me Bitcoin is the best asset to trade he's ever traded in his life. It's so easy. He's like, it goes up, 
it follows a trend line. When it breaks a trend line, it goes down. Like trade it. <laughs> you know, when it breaks a trend line, short it. When it goes, when it come, when it when it you know when it when it breaks to a moving average, go long. Like, and you were actually, I don't know. He seems to he said like that just works. I don't have to even think about it too much. Um, I mean, yeah. And on the shorting thing, I think I don't know. Like, you know, there are better things to short than mania stocks. Um, uh, you know, good story stocks where the investor base is very loyal is it's just a widow maker. There's like, and the, 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 uh, I think, you know, Marco Hodes, who has had a difficult year, um, difficult few years in my opinion, but um, he has some piles of wisdom on short selling. And, and one, one I always liked was, you know, wait, wait till the Jaguars out of the tree, you know, like, um, he, and I, I think about Peloton, you know, it went from, it IPO'd at 25 bucks. It went to 180 during the pandemic and now it's back at 20 bucks. Okay. But there were a lot of hero people hero shorting it, like, you know, on the way up during the pandemic. And obviously everyone was buying it because that was a trade, a lockdown stock. Zoom, Peloton, blah, blah, blah. Um, Netflix also. But the, 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 the way to short it was short it when it went back down to 50 this year, like in, in the December. Like if, you know, you wait until it's broken. Because they're, they're still, there's still, you know, there's still a lot of market cap left. It's not like it's a small company now. So um, I think you need to wait for the story to break. Um, and, you know, uh, but, and, and in between, don't bother. Or maybe, you know what, just don't bother at all. Like there's easy, there's probably easy ways to make money in markets and shorting. And um, yeah, and there's a lot of, com- there's a lot of bad companies out there who don't have stories. So, you know. What about the one stock that gets everybody angry, Tesla, right? Tesla's been going up for like three years now, and I can't find a good, good, good reason for it. <laughs> In 2020, uh, David Einhorn questions its uh, questioned its accounting, but as far as I know, nothing's come out after that. What happens to the what happened to the accounts receivables story? Um, I think they've kind of stayed as a percent, same percent of revenues. Um, I think, I mean, with Tesla, look, the business has, you can't, the business is not the same one as it was in 2018 when it, you know, in Elon Musk's words, they were like two weeks from bankruptcy. Okay. okay. So back then it was good. It was a good, it was a good, it, you know, it was a fertile place for short. And Elon was doing absolutely everything to keep the business afloat. Like the, the model three rollout in 2017 was a disaster. And they had massive liquidity problems. They were doing capital raises like every six months. You know, the business was very different. And then when they went free cash flow positive in Q3 2019, um, that the story sort of changed. And it went from being like, can you value this company like a car? Should it be valued like a car company or should it be valued like a tech company? And the tech company argument is winning. Um, it's the valuation is completely ridiculous compared to other automakers just on a relative basis. But then it is um, a different proposition to other automakers um, slightly. Um, just that it seems to like, no matter how much they annoy their customer, I'm on a lot on Tesla Facebook forums, like the customers aren't that happy, you know, with how they're treated, but it's in, it's like the, the brand is like indestructible. People love buying these cars and they love showing them off and it's got this kind of Apple aura to the car. Um, uh so it is slightly different to a VW or even a BMW or a Mercedes. Um, and um, the software component, I mean, I'm not, that's a completely different story. Like I, I'm not, I know. they are, they did, again, to their credit, they did bring in updating their cars over the air before anyone else did. And it does work. 
um, and it's pretty impressive, um, and they're nice to, you know. Um, but you know, the self-driving thing is obviously a massive issue, and it's gonna there's gonna be some regulatory, more regulatory stories to come on that. I do not doubt Pete Buttigieg seems to be on it, um, and the HCSEA seems to be more on it now under Biden than they were under Trump. But yeah, I think the accounting with Tesla, like, it, like there's no, I don't know, like, I, I did some work on it. Um, like, it doesn't matter. Like, all that matters with this company is deliveries and revenue growth. Like, no one looks at any other indicators. And until one of those breaks, they stop growing, or they miss a target, or a model is delayed, or they have a huge recall. I mean, they had like a decent-sized recall in December and didn't even move the share price. Like, that's what matters for this business. And um, I don't know what will change the perception of the business at the moment, bar some, like, left field, like, absolutely bonkers negative story, you know. I don't know. You know, bar, like, Elon leaving, you know, or something like that. Like that will Elon, move the share price. Yeah, okay. Quitting. But I, I <laughs> there's, it, it's, um, it's really, yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a fascinating story. And um, I don't think the business is worth a trillion dollars. Like, you know, it probably could be worth a tenth of that um, at the moment. Um, looking at where markets are, even compared to, yeah, I mean, maybe maybe more than a tenth looking where Rivian is still. But um, uh, it, it's, you know, it defies gravity. Even in the sell-off we've had at the beginning of this year, it's held up pretty well. Um so, um, and the shareholders are very loyal, the floats very, it's quite tight. I mean, it's not maybe a little less tight now Elon sold some stock, but it's, you know, it's quite tightly, you know, it, move, it moves for a big market cap. This company moves like 7% a lot, which shows you how liquid it is. Um, so, um, yeah, I don't have, I mean, the accounting, like, as I said, like, yeah, I mean, People will care about the accounting if it was down 80%. <laughs> that's, that's where people start to care. But I think it's interesting. But actually, to be fair, their accounts have been quite clean recently. You know, they weren't very clean in 18, 19, and they're a lot cleaner now. Um, so, yeah, I, I haven't seen anything of late. I mean, there were some funnies in 18, 19, but, um, yeah. I'd love to see – and their accounts retrievable question has always been a good one because um, te- what how Tesla – I haven't done a huge amount of work on this and it's, it's on my kind of long list of things to look at, but how Tesla have changed their definition of what a delivery is, is super interesting. Because it went from being like, you know, we count a sale when it gets delivered to the customer. Okay, so therefore your receivables shouldn't be very high because you get the money then, right? Yeah. Um, or you get it in advance, they take deposits, they get a good chunk of it in advance as well. Wow. Um, but it went to being... It's, it's changed slightly. Now there's like a financially delivered and, you know, the, the, the definition of what is delivered has changed. So I think that's interesting. But yeah, again, I don't think, it, I don't think it's worth losing sleep over at the moment anyway. So, yeah. A few questions about your work, okay? Um, what's about the, what? About, about the way you do your work, okay? Mm. Um, how are... FT Alpha journalists evaluated on. Do you get page views? Matt Levine says he doesn't get his page views and he doesn't want to know because it gives him the wrong incentive. What's your objective function like? Well, I agree with Matt on that. I mean, I'm not Matt Levine and I'm sure Matt <laughs> Levine's page views are absolutely outrageous. So <laughs> um, that's why he doesn't check them because he knows he's good. Um, but um, 
Yeah, I mean, I to be honest, I never ever check my page views. I get, I think it's, a, I think it's, a, a, Matt's could be right. It changes, it like warps your incentives and like um, what you want to get from a story. And of course, I know that when I write about Tesla, more people will read about it because it's a super popular stock. And the same when you write about Bitcoin. And if you can put them in a story together, it probably means more people, you know, read it. Like that's just, you know, that you don't need to check the numbers. Um, but also. There's an element with FT Alphaville stories where it's not so much how many people read it, but who reads it. And if you cause a share price to fall or you get a message from someone really important or someone you really respect being like, that was a great article. Like for me, that is kind of how I evaluate myself. You know, like okay. does the market care? Do people I respect think it was a good piece? Are people happy internally with the article? You know, they said that was a great piece. Like that's kind of how I think about it. And you know, those are quite rare to be fair. Like you don't get them very often, but um, uh, yeah, that, that's, um, yeah, I think that's kind of how I, by the way, myself. And then like, I mean, from a business point of view, I don't know, I don't know, like, you know, it's kind of like pulling out one show from Netflix or something and being like, is this show contributed to Netflix? Like maybe, but maybe it might be a really sticky show that people keep returning to and watching in small numbers mm -hmm. and they're not going to churn. So I don't know, like there, there's, it's, 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 it's a difficult world to be in because you're not like it's not sales like my old job was sales like I had a target every year and I had to hit the target so you know that was it's a lot clearer on whether you've done your job or not but, um you, you don't get paid by the commission here no 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 there's no oh, well I've never had anyone refer to my page views but as, as a good example actually um I mean my uh I wrote an article about the VW short squeeze in 2018 so 10 years after the short squeeze in 2008 was the biggest short squeeze ever until it's still bigger than GameStop, to be honest. But um, that that article got read a lot last year. Uh, in because, of GameStop. because of GameStop. But the page views when it came out, I was a bit disappointed. That was one I did check because I spent a lot of time on it. It was like a 2000 word article, like did a lot of research, a lot of numbers work, etc. But it wasn't that well read and it got 30 comments. I still remember being like, oh, that was like one of my best stories. And, you know, it was my first year at Alphaville as well. Um, so I, you always remember your kind of first few big pieces. Um, but then it was the best read article like last January. One of the best read articles on the whole FT last January. Oh. So sometimes when you do good work, it's not going to, it might reverberate later on, you know, and, and it will have it'll take on extra meaning later on. And I think that's a sign of a good piece sometimes is that you go back like that, Dan's, Original Wirecard articles, Dan McCrum, when he wrote, first wrote about Wirecard in 2015, there's these like very long, complicated articles where he's clearly done like, he's done almost too much work and he, you can't really see the wood from the trees at times. It's like, you know, Gibraltar company accounts and like, you know, which aren't going to give you a huge amount of detail, but he's got into it and it's like yeah. pieced together. And it's like, so that meme from, it's always telling Philadelphia with the guy pointing at the, the chalkboard behind it with all the lines. Uh, it's uh, quite like that. They're the early Wirecard stories, but they're great, you know, the geeky and like, but I'm sure they weren't that well read. Um, but then now, you know, the company blows up four years, five years, five years later. And uh, I'm, I'm sure the numbers were fantastic on them. So sometimes you do a piece and it doesn't quite catch then doesn't mean it won't catch in the future. So getting caught up in your daily numbers is kind of, yeah, the incentives are wrong. I think Matt's completely right about that. What, uh, this is my last question to you, what advice do you have for young people who want to write, especially about finance and markets? 
write often. The first thing I say is write often. When I first joined FT Alphaville, I'd never been a journalist, which was quite a terrifying experience. I mean, I'd done some writing and I thought I could write. Um, but writing every day is like the, the difference now and how fast I am at writing. Um, it used to take me a, a very painful day and a half to write like an 800 word article. Now it takes me like two hours yeah. so um, or an hour. So um, if I know what I'm going to say, you know, and so like practice, like anything in life, like practice is like 90% of it. And, um, but then um, find, find a niche, find, find something you're really interested in markets abroad. It's, it's, you know, there's a lot of space for people who know a lot about equities, know a lot about crypto, who really understand accounting, etc. There aren't many bloggers out there still writing about these sorts of subjects um, or research reports. Um, you know, even short seller, you know, as I said, like not every short report hits and those guys are meant to be experts, right? So if you can find like a niche, um, dig into that rather than like trying to be super broad in your knowledge. Um, helps to know your macro, helps to understand. I think you need a basic understanding of like how the money supply works or what QE is. And because otherwise you get into all sorts of confusion. Like I see people, like the thing, one of the most annoying things in markets is, QE means stocks are going up. Like, it, like it's absolute bullshit, right? <laughs> like the lot, the lodge. There's no, there is no. It's, it's like the Fed is giving people money to buy equities. Like that's literally how people frame it. And it's like I'm not, it's just an asset swap. You're just swapping one asset for another. Like that's all QE is, right? But like you need to at least, if you don't want to look like an idiot, you need to understand that stuff because no one's going to take you seriously if you think that. In my opinion, um, so you need to know the basics. But above that, you don't need to know like how to price a currency by doing a what, why currencies are priced in different ways according to interest rates and what the equation is. Like that, that's not that sort of stuff. You don't need to know kind of CFA level one stuff. You don't need to know that. Um, but yeah, find a niche, practice writing a lot, and through the writing you'll learn more, and that will give you more expertise within that niche. And that's a, that's like a very nice simple flywheel, I think. Um, and yeah, and be curious, like, um, and also read a lot, reading, reading, and not just reading finance books. I know uh, the, what I have read a lot. I've read too many finance books. Like I've read, I don't know, there was a period I was reading like one a week, you know, and I must have read like 180, 250 <laughs> books, you know, and I like, I don't know. And there's probably 10 finance books I'd recommend. And out, outside of that, they all say the same thing, basically. The, bit, the, the business history ones are good. Those are the ones you should read. You know, Den of like, Thieves, Barbarians of the Gay, Den of Thieves, uh, Reminiscences of a Stock Market Operator, uh, David Einhorn's book, Fooling, Fooling People, um, oh, that The Match is, that King. That's amazing, yeah. Yeah, The Match King, Cable Cowboy. Like, read about businesses. Like, Warren Buffett's biographies are good. The Snowball is excellent. Um, but, like, books about, like, how to invest, like, they're, all the, they're almost all the same. You could probably just read like Seth Carman's Margin of Safety, Joel Greenblatt, uh, Peter Lynch, Guy Spear, maybe. And I'm, I'm looking at him above me. Um, those ones I'd probably recommend. And Michael Mabuchon. Like that will give you nearly everything you need to know. Um, so yeah, read widely, read fiction. Fiction will make you a much better writer. Like it'll give you like, I, I think really fiction. I try to read alternate fiction and 
um, finance or business books, uh, non-fiction. What are your best fiction recommendations? I need zero fiction, and I want to read more. Um, I'd start with the classics. I just, I just go after like if you've not read like nineteenth-century or twentieth-century classics. I mean, I wouldn't read Ulysses or uh, I wouldn't read a James Joyce or a difficult book. But those, but like the classics are surprisingly easy to read. Mm-hmm. Um, like Wuthering Heights, um, Dostoevsky, Tolstoy. Um, uh, yeah, I mean, I mean those that that sort of like big novel. Um, yeah, I mean, there's so many good books. Just look at like the top hundred novels ever list. Mm-hmm. They all be super enjoyable to read. Um, and um, they'll give you some, I think those books are just very good, like uh, understanding, like I've, um, they give you a great understanding about how people think and operate. Uh, you know, the, the, the greatest books do that. And that's very valuable in markets. I mean, a lot of the psychology of how people operate. I mean, that's what all the great books are cover or or they touch on at least um so i I definitely recommend um getting your nose into more fiction if you don't read some already um i mean last year i read um one book's really stand out edward st orbin who's a british author um wrote these five books about his life i mean they're they're not autobiographical but they basically are they're kind of fiction but they're about his childhood and when he was a teenager and they're just like superb you know so good to read um, they're called the Patrick Melrose series. There was a t- television series made about them with Benedict Cumberbatch that came out in 2018. But um, the books are just like, I read them all in like a week. They were just fantastic, you know, uh, very moving, very touching. And I think sometimes it's good to take a step back and do something which is not related to markets to switch off. Because as I said, it is quite, it can be incredibly, I'm sure you find it like, it is 24 hours like there's always yeah. something happening right so it's good to do something which removes you from that and takes your concentration and, um it's not the only thing you can do you can go to cinema you can play video games you, can, you know but yeah but re- reading will give you an extra depth than some of those other activities will um so yeah yeah uh, i also make you much better writer so definitely uh thank you so much yeah. for coming i had great fun talking about uh talking and uh I think it's going to be a great hit with listeners. Cheers, Brad. I appreciate your time and thanks for being up so late in Singapore. So, <laughs> no yeah. problem. Yeah.